We'll be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 37. We'll read verses 1 through 7. I am reading out of my dad's Bible this morning, so the text is a little smaller, so bear with me. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it, to, told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the saying, Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, the story of Joseph is one that has captured the imagination of people since it was first told, I'm sure. Uh, Joseph's story has been retold in song, in painting, in tapestry, on the stage and in the movie theater. It's one that deeply resonates with us. It's the story of a younger brother who is mistreated by his older siblings, sold into slavery in a foreign land, only to rise to power and save not only his family, but the known world from famine. It's a story of the triumph of an underdog, if you will, and it's the sort of story that we all love. And it's easy to miss the point in Joseph's story. All the action centers around Joseph, but he is being used by God to preserve the lives of his brothers, to keep God's promise to Israel of a company of nations. And more specifically, Joseph is being used by God to preserve the life of his brother Judah, from whom will come the King, Christ, according to the promise of God. The story isn't really about Joseph at all. It's about God keeping his promises, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and the promise of a redeemer, a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. So that's ultimately what Joseph's story is about, the coming of Christ. But 
We love this story of the younger son who is raised to power in Egypt, and it's a fantastic story. And and as we work our way through it, there are examples from Joseph's life of integrity, moral fortitude, the rejection of temptation, and of course, suffering and the providence of God. So this morning is really just an introduction to the life of Joseph, but I want to peek ahead at some of these other episodes of the providence of God in his life so that we can see some patterns that emerge that are repeated throughout Joseph's story and point to the glory of God and sovereignly controlling the affairs of men. And so my point this morning is this. God, like a master poet, works in the details of our lives, even through tragedy, to create patterns of providence that reveal the beauty of his saving grace. Now, we've noted before the poetic justice that we have seen or the poetic irony that is present in the events of the lives of the patriarchs. So now I want us to look at the poetic providence that is present as well. And we can see it particularly well in the life of Joseph. It's really divine poetry. A poem is a piece of literature that's written for a specific purpose, to to convey some message to the reader, but the poet carefully chooses his words, not only for their obvious meaning, but for their sound, for their imagery, for their suggestive qualities, And, and the words are carefully arranged into patterns, lines of specific meter, with rhythm and and often with rhyme, so that they evoke not only a mental image, but an emotional response from the reader or the listener. And God does the same thing in the lives of his people, in individual lives, but also across history. We can discern patterns to the divine providence that guide the affairs of men. We can see uh, in the fulfillment of prophecies promises throughout the scripture, we can see these patterns begin to emerge. But it's true in our own lives as well. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 2.10 and says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we can see uh, that God as a master poet is arranging the lines of our lives so that there's a corresponding pattern here. God has prepared good works for us to walk in. He has created us anew in Christ, a new creature, sanctifying us, conforming us into the image of his Son so that we can do these good works that he has prepared for us. It's really beyond our comprehension, the attention to every detail that God works out in order for these things to take place. But Ephesians 2.10 said there that we are his workmanship. And we might be tempted when we hear that word to think of like a building project, right? Workmanship. And so we think God erecting a building. But I want to suggest to you that maybe we should think of it as God composing a poem instead. The history of the world, of, of humanity, is a poem of which God is the author. 
and the events of history are arranged by, arranged by him into patterns that tell of his glory and his grace. The word that is translated there as workmanship in Ephesians 2.10 is poema. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word, poem. And it means that which is made or done, a creation or a work. It doesn't mean poetry in the Greek. It just simply means something that is made and completed. But you can see how it came to mean poem in English because a poem is a work or a creation that must be intentionally made. Meter and rhyme don't happen by accident. The poet has to arrange the words in a particular order. The only other place this word is used in the New Testament is in Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. There's our word, poema. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. All of creation is designed by God, arranged by God, to point to God as the creator. This includes the heavens themselves. It includes the events of our lives, even the hard ones. And there are several patterns of providence that are set here at the beginning of Joseph's story, patterns that we see later in his life, but also throughout Scripture in the lives of believers generally. So let's examine this first stanza of the poem of Joseph's life. The first pattern that I want us to see here is related to what we have talked about in the last two chapters of Genesis. In chapter 35, uh, we saw the promise that God made to Jacob that kings would come from his body. And we saw how that promise ultimately points toward Christ as the king of kings. And then in chapter 36, we saw Esau's descendants had kings of their own long before Israel did. And we saw that God's people often have less rule and less prosperity on earth than the wicked. And yet, we have the promise of the eternal rule of Christ in his kingdom. But if you'll remember, chapter 35 kind of left the reader wondering who Which one of Jacob's sons will this promise be fulfilled through? Will it be Judah, the fourth son born to to Jacob from his wife Leah? Or will it be Joseph, the firstborn son of Rachel, his beloved wife? Now, Joseph, of course, is the 11th born son uh, in the order of the 12. Well, here in the opening verses of chapter 37 we see this first pattern, and it kind of answers that question for us. In verse 2, we find that Joseph is with the sons of of Jacob's concubines, the maidservants of Leah and Rachel. And so these would be his brothers, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And the language of verse 2 is very interesting. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now, it says Joseph was feeding the flock. The implication here, the language of this verse, implies that Joseph, though he is only 17, he's a young lad, he had some responsibility for the sheep. He was a shepherd 
over the flock. That's literally what it says. Uh, While he was still a lad, he was a shepherd over the flock, and he was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Now, if you'll remember, Jacob himself, from quite a young age, had distinguished himself as a responsible, hardworking, and able manager of the family's shepherding business. It appears that perhaps Joseph is following in his father's footsteps. Now, there's no doubt that Jacob favors Joseph. We see that clearly in verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. So, So he openly loves Joseph more than his brothers, and he gives him this coat signifying royalty. The coat of many colors is is a part of the story that often captures our attention. And this sort of garment is only mentioned in two other places in Scripture, both associated with royalty or ruling. And so for Jacob to gift such a coat to Joseph clearly reveals to us Jacob's desire that Joseph would be the chosen son through whom the promise would be fulfilled. And this most probably played into his appointing Joseph as a shepherd over the flock. But don't let that cloud our judgment of Joseph. By all indications, he was an industrious and quite capable shepherd or manager of things. He later becomes the trusted head of Potiphar's household, and then the prison, and then finally all of Egypt. Now, The hand of God was on him in all of that, blessing him and prospering his work. But his masters trusted him because he proved himself to be excellent at what he did, to be a very equipped manager. So in this case, Jacob is treating Joseph with preferential treatment, but it's also likely that Joseph is very good at managing the flocks, and so he has set him over the flocks. And and this kind of sheds new light on the last line there in verse 2. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. As an astute manager of the flock, Joseph reports back to his father on the actions of his brothers. Now, he may be a shepherd who has charge of the flock, but he's still their younger brother. And so it makes sense that Uh, Rather than dealing with uh, the bad behavior of his older brothers, their irresponsibility perhaps, we don't know exactly what the report is, but rather than dealing with it firsthand because he is the younger brother, he goes back to his father Jacob with this report. And we'll see in the next section of the story, Lord willing, that we'll look at next week, that uh, Jacob will later send Joseph to check on the flocks that are under the care of his older brothers and to check on uh, the state of those flocks and of those brothers. So this sort of makes my point that Joseph might have been given charge over the flocks, but he's still under his father's authority. And, And so here's our pattern. Though Jacob has marked Joseph as royalty, as the son who who he hopes and desires God will work through to bring forth a king. Joseph is still second in command to Jacob. And this becomes a pattern in his life. He is second to his father. Then he is sold into slavery. 
And Joseph will be raised up to be over all of Potiphar's household. But he's still Potiphar's slave, second in command. When he's cast into prison in Egypt, the warden of the prison will promote Joseph to have command over the daily operations of the prison. But he's still a prisoner, second in command. When he's taken out of the prison to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, Pharaoh will promote Joseph to be his prime minister over all the land of Egypt. But he's still under Pharaoh's authority, second in command. There's a pattern here. Joseph is always promoted to second in command, but he never attains the throne. He never attains that first position. Pharaoh actually says in chapter 41, verse 40, you shall be over my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne shall I be greater than you. Joseph never attains a throne because God had other plans. Joseph was raised to increasing positions of power and authority until he is in place to preserve the family of Israel alive so that his brother Judah would live and that Judah's descendants, David, and then Christ would ascend to the throne. The pattern of Joseph's life is to be second in command, to rule, but as a servant of one that is greater than himself. And this is a pattern that extends beyond Joseph. We see the same pattern in the life of David. He ruled as a servant. Uh, sorry, in the life of Daniel, who ruled as a servant under multiple pagan kings. We see this same pattern in the life of Christ, don't we? He has ascended on high and, according to Hebrews 12, 2, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the second person of the Trinity, rules over a kingdom that has been given to him by his Father. And we see this same pattern extending out into eternity. Believers are promised that we will rule and reign with Christ, but as his servants. After reminding his disciples that he had come among them as one who serves, Jesus then said in Luke 22, And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And to the churches in Revelation chapter 3, Christ said, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. There is a reigning with Christ in the future for believers, but it is still his table, his kingdom, and his throne. So, Contrary to the teaching of Mormonism, we will not become gods and rule over our own planets. We do not attain divinity. We will rule in the eternal kingdom as joint heirs with Christ, but ultimately as his faithful servants. There's a pattern here in Joseph's life that extends beyond his life into the lives of the elect for all eternity. The second pattern that we observe in Joseph's life is the hatred and envy that he experiences at the hand of his brothers. And this begins in verse 4. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Jealousy 
stirred up their hearts in response to their father's favoritism so that they hated Jacob and could not even speak shalom to him. They did not wish him well. This hatred continues to increase throughout these 11 verses. In verse 5, we read, And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. Joseph's brothers increase in hatred toward him because of his dreams. When he told them the dream, the brother's response is found in verse 8. His brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. They hated him even more, not only because he was favored by their father, but because of the words that he spoke to them. They had a hatred of who he was, the favorite son of the father, and they had a hatred of his words. Now, If they had viewed his dreams as just ordinary dreams of a 17-year-old boy, they probably would have dismissed those dreams as something just to laugh at. They took these dreams to be prophetic. At least they believed Jacob took them that way, Joseph took them that way, and they didn't like it. Commenting on the telling of his second dream, Puritan commentator Matthew Henry had this to say, Joseph was more of a prophet than a politician, else he would have kept this to himself. His brothers didn't like what he was communicating to them that God had revealed in his dreams. He knew they didn't want to hear it, especially after the way they had reacted with hatred to his first dream. But Joseph seems compelled to speak the truth of the prophetic vision in spite of the consequences to his own person, which rings true to the picture we have throughout the scriptures of the prophets. Even Jacob reacted to the second dream, uh, which indicated not only Joseph's elevation over his brothers, but Joseph's uh, authority over the whole family, and Jacob himself even. And in verse 10, it says he told it to his father and to his brethren. His father rebuked him. And said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? But then in verse 11, it tells us that while his brothers not only hated him, they envied him, but Jacob begins to think differently, begins to ponder the dreams. His brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. This is similar language to what is said of Mary in the New Testament when prophecies and things are spoken of Christ, that she she stored up these things in her heart. She pondered them, considered them, and thought about them. So Jacob is thinking on these dreams. He knows that God speaks through dreams. God spoke to him through a dream. So he's willing to to humble himself to the truth of God being communicated in this way, but Joseph's brothers are not. They clearly view the dreams as prophetic, as coming from God, but they will not humble themselves under God's word. Instead, they respond with hatred and envy. And we'll see this pattern of hatred will lead to the contemplation and the planning of murder and then ultimately to the selling of Joseph into slavery. And this pattern is repeated throughout Scripture. Israel itself experiences this hatred as we reflected on previously from their brother Edom. 
as they are attempting to enter the promised land, and Edom opposes them. And then again later when Edom cheers on the Babylonians as they destroy Jerusalem. David experienced the anger and hatred of his brothers in 1 Samuel 17 when he shows up and defies Goliath. This is a pattern. It's a pattern of sin that is spread throughout all humanity, this hatred and animosity between brothers. It's a pattern that actually began before Joseph. It's a pattern that began the very beginning of the book of Genesis. And there's a certain poetry to this, that the book of Genesis begins and ends with animosity between brothers. Right near the beginning of the book in chapter 4, we have the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, if you'll remember, responded with anger and hatred towards Abel, his brother, when he saw that God accepted Abel and Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain and his offering. Cain's hatred ended in murder. And now at the end of the book, once again, we have hatred between the brothers. Murder is contemplated this time, but ultimately God uses the brother's hatred against Joseph as part of his design in order to save those brothers from death. It's a poetic reversal, if you will. And of course, it points forward to Christ, whose brothers mocked him and provoked him, for even his brothers did not believe in him, the Apostle John records for us in his gospel. Those of his hometown of Nazareth were offended by the words he spoke. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. His ministry was opposed by the Jewish leaders because they didn't like what he taught. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. John eight forty, And so they orchestrated his rest and his trial. But as he's on trial, Pilate even recognizes what their motives are. For Mark tells us in chapter 15, verse 9, for he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. This is a pattern that continues in the life of Christ's followers. In Acts 13, 45, it says, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. And so Christ himself warns us that we will face this sort of hatred in the world. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. We are to expect this same sort of treatment that Joseph endured because we speak the truth of the gospel to those who do not want to hear it. But Peter exhorts us, as believers, to lay aside the hatred and the envy in our own hearts and to desire the truth of God's word. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby 
if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Just as Joseph was hated by his brothers because of the truth of his words, so too was Christ, and so too are we when we speak the truth of the gospel. This leads us to the third pattern we can see in Joseph's life, that of suffering before glory. Now, while it's true that Joseph is elevated by uh, his father to a position of prominence without any apparent suffering, from that point forward, we see a pattern emerge in which Joseph suffers some sort of setback, persecution, before being raised up to an even more glorious position. He has his two dreams, tells them to his brothers. They don't receive them well. So his brothers plot his demise, and ultimately, they sell him into slavery. He's sold to a band of Ishmaelites who take him to Egypt and sell him to a man named Potiphar, an officer and captain of Pharaoh's guard. He promotes Joseph to be the head of his entire holdings, both in the home and in the field. But then Joseph is falsely accused and thrown into prison. There he's promoted to second in command. Only the warden is above him in authority within this prison But then Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker end up in prison. They have dreams. Joseph interprets their dreams, and and he asks the cupbearer to remember him when he is restored to his position and to get him out of the prison. But the cupbearer forgets Joseph, leaves him to languish in prison for another two years. It isn't until Pharaoh has his dreams that the cupbearer suddenly remembers Joseph, and they bring him out of the prison and he is elevated to be Pharaoh's prime minister. So you can see a pattern here of suffering before ascending to glory. This pattern can be seen throughout the scriptures. Consider David, the king. He is anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king over Israel. And then he has to wait for nearly 15 years. And during those 15 years, he spends much of that living in caves because he is on the run as an outlaw while King Saul is hunting him, wanting to kill him. Christ obviously fits this pattern as well, suffering not only betrayal and false accusations, but death itself on the cross. Speaking to two of his disciples after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? and to enter into his glory. Christ suffered before ascending to glory. And the pattern continues in the lives of Christians to this day. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas visit the churches in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. It says they are strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, So here is is what the Apostle Paul would say to the churches to strengthen their faith. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Let that strengthen your faith. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Later, he will write to the church in Rome saying, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified. As strangers and pilgrims on this earth, we should expect to suffer. We suffer sickness and death just by means of living 
in a world that is ravaged by the fall, the consequences of sin. We suffer persecution and hatred, reviling from the world who opposes the truth that we proclaim, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we have the promise and the hope of glory that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth. So like Joseph, like David, like Christ himself, we experience this pattern of suffering before glory. The fourth pattern is a little more difficult to see, but it's there, and I trust that you'll see it once I point it out to you. And that is a pattern of being stripped and reclothed. Jacob is clothed by his father in verse 3 with a coat of many colors. And I've already said that this represented royalty. We see this in Judges 5, if you'll remember. Sisera was a commander of a Canaanite army that had been oppressing Israel. And so God raises up Deborah and Barak to defeat this army. But Sisera is ultimately defeated by Jael, a Canaanite woman who drives a stake through his head. It's a fascinating story. But Deborah and Barak sing a victory song after the battle. And in the song, they note that Sisera's mother expected him to return victorious. And she expected him to come home from the battle with spoil, with prey that he had gotten uh, from his victims, a prey of diverse colors, a prey of diverse colors of needlework, of diverse colors of needlework on both sides, meat for the necks of them that take the spoil. And then in 2 Samuel, We're told that David's daughter, Tamar, had a garment of diverse colors upon her, for with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. So this is a mark of royalty to wear a coat of many colors. It marks your rank or your royalty. But Joseph's brothers strip his rank from him. They take the coat, they tear it, they dip it in blood, they send it to their father. Scripture doesn't specifically mention Joseph being clothed by Potiphar, but we can assume that he was, being second in command of Potiphar's estate. I'm sure that he was dressed at least moderately well. But then Potiphar's wife tries to entice him into sin, and when Joseph refuses, she catches hold of his garment such that he had to leave it in her hand, and she later uses that robe that she has stripped from him to falsely accuse him and have him thrown into prison. So once again, he is stripped of his station. Then Pharaoh has his dreams, and the cupbearer remembers Joseph, and it says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon, and he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. Being brought out of the prison involved a change of clothing. Then when Pharaoh promotes Joseph, he is once again clothed in splendor. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. So there's a pattern to be seen here in Joseph's life. A change of clothing is involved with this pattern of suffering before glory. The same is true in the life of Christ, who was stripped of his robes when he was scourged mockingly clothed with a purple robe before being beaten by the Roman soldiers. And then as he hung on the cross, it says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The prophet in this case is David, who wrote Psalm 22. And I I don't know what personal experience in David's life may have contributed to him writing those words, but the Holy Spirit meant it prophetically of Christ. And after his glorification, 
Christ is pictured in Revelation as one who stood in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And later in the book, as it pictures his return in judgment, it says that he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. Now, given that Joseph's coat of many colors was dipped in blood and sent to his father, there's an obvious parallel at work. In Ezekiel, the prophet has a vision of God on his throne. And it says, Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And in Revelation, we again see the rainbow around the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And then in Revelation 10, John sees an image of one that he calls a mighty angel that we have good reason to believe is a figure of Christ himself. And he says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. So here the rainbow, which represents royalty, it represents God's presence, is being worn like a crown. He is literally clothed with the rainbow. This coat of many colors represents royalty, authority, and rule. It shows just how egregious it is that those who defy the Creator's authority regarding sexuality have chosen to drape around their shoulders this symbol of God's authority while they confess their pride. They are claiming the right to rule. They are claiming the right to reign for themselves in God's place. In essence, they are claiming to be God. It's blasphemous. And on the coming day of the Lord, they will be judged by the true and living God who is crowned with the rainbow and whose seat of judgment is surrounded by the rainbow as with glory. Back to our pattern. This pattern of a change of clothing when elevated to glory is repeated in the lives of believers as well. Having come to faith in Christ, we are told to put off the old man and the filthy rags of our own works, and we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are told to put on the armor of light in Romans 13, 12, to put on the Lord Jesus in Romans 13, 14, to put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness in Ephesians 4, 24. And we are told that ultimately we will put on immortality when we are renewed in glory. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. So when this corruptible is put on incorruptible and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And throughout the book of Revelation, the saints of God are pictured as wearing white robes, symbolizing their purity, the righteousness of Christ applied to us that gives us standing with God in the kingdom. This is very much poetry that God would include these references to the change of clothing in the pattern of Joseph's life as he is elevated to glory in order to foreshadow the change from sinfulness to holiness in the life of the believers. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. 
And the last pattern that we can observe here is found in the two dreams that Joseph has. Joseph has two dreams uh, depicting his rise to power in Genesis 37. Later, when he is in prison, two of Pharaoh's servants, the cupbearer and the baker, will have dreams on the same night. Then finally, Pharaoh will have two dreams in one night. And Joseph is called upon to interpret these dreams, and he addresses the issue of, of the repetition of the dreams, the pattern of two. And he says that God sent Pharaoh two dreams in order to confirm the revelation from God. Genesis 41, 32, and the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, what's amazing about this is that Joseph's two dreams of him being raised, elevated to a position of authority so that his brothers would bow before him has not been fulfilled at that point. Joseph had these dreams that he believed were prophetic, sent to him from God. Then he was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused and imprisoned, forgotten for two years. He was a slave and a prisoner in a foreign land, and he still believed and trusted in prophetic dreams from God. That's amazing faith on Joseph's part. Now, shortly after this, his own dreams are fulfilled as he is set over all of Egypt and his brothers come seeking grain just as he had dreamed, and they bow before him. Two dreams to verify the word of God. In the New Testament, interestingly, God speaks to another Joseph in dreams, and two of his dreams have to do with Egypt and preserving the Christ child from the hatred and the malice of Herod. Amazing patterns of providence. Throughout the life of Joseph can be seen this poetry of God's workmanship as he arranges the details of Joseph's life to reveal the beauty of his saving grace. The same is true in the lives of other saints recorded throughout the scriptures and in our lives as well. Whatever you may be experiencing in life, know that God's hand is in it. It is part of his grand design. It is for your good and for his glory. You may not be able to see it, but he means it for good. Even the hatred and the envy and the wickedness of Joseph's brothers was meant by God for good. At the end of the book, Joseph's father, Jacob, dies and his brothers are scared. They're worried that now that Jacob is dead, Joseph will get revenge on them for the way they treated him. But Joseph reassures them. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. God meant it for good. He didn't just use it for good. He meant it for good. And again, this points forward to Christ through the Jewish leaders. They meant evil against Christ. They called for his execution when he was innocent. And he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, Peter tells us in Acts 2.23. And why? For the saving of the elect, 
For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So I'll close with one final observation about Joseph's dreams and perhaps another pattern that we can see here. In the first dream, he relates to his brothers. It's found in verse 7. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. Behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. So now this dream has to do with sheaves of grain. And his brothers will later bow before him as they come to Egypt seeking grain. It's the poetry of providence and action. But then the second dream is found in verse 9. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. Now this dream is a little more complicated, but the essence of it is the same. The whole family will be under the rule of Joseph. And remember in the account of creation in chapter 1 of Genesis, what God said concerning the sun, the moon, and the stars. It says that God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night. That is their purpose, to rule over the day and over the night. Both of Joseph's dreams involve rule, his rule. The first dream depicts rule on earth, sheaves of grain. The second dream depicts rule in heaven over the sun, the moon, and the stars. So what is the pattern here? Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's a pattern of rule and authority in heaven and on earth, a pattern that finds its fulfillment in Christ. Joseph's story, remember, isn't really about Joseph at all. It's about preserving Judah and preparing the way for Christ. So I'll close with a quote here from Reformed Baptist Pastor Mitchell Chase, who writes this, Jesus is a true and greater Joseph. Jesus would reign as a king of kings, but this rule would be accomplished through rejection and suffering. Fellow Israelites plotted against him. One of his disciples denied him, and another disciple betrayed him for silver. The betrayal led to arrest. The arrest led to false accusations, and a verdict of death meant crucifixion. So outside the city of Jerusalem, Jewish and Roman forces opposed Jesus and delighted in his defeat. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus' descent into the pit of death was followed by resurrection and vindication. He revealed himself to his disciples. He restored Peter, and he commissioned them to spread the good news. Jesus achieved the greatest work of reconciliation. He brought together not merely estranged siblings, but sinners and a righteous God. And God gave Jesus the name that is above every name, that at his name every knee will bow. We didn't even cover all of the things he mentioned there that are, happen in the life of Joseph that point forward to Christ. But you can see that God is at work in the details of the life of Joseph as a master poet arranging the lines with meter and with rhyme, patterns of providence pointing towards the glory of God and the salvation of men through Christ. So take heart. If you find yourself stripped of status, thrown into a pit of persecution or despair, just remember, the final stanza of the poem is still coming. 
the pattern that God has crafted will be kept. For we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified. Let's pray.